Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Detroit Bad Boys Podcast, coming to you just a few days after the four-overtime thriller and just two days before the Pistons take on the Miami Heat. Finally, a break, a three-day break for the Detroit Pistons, a perfect time to talk about our team. We have some big things to talk about, including uh, the return of Brandon Jennings, seeing him in game action over the weekend. And to help us talk about that D-League game is our D-League correspondent for the Detroit Bad Boys, Jacob Kivenhoven. How are you, Jacob? I'm doing well, guys. Um, I'm sorry about how far the podcast must have fallen to have me on twice, but otherwise I'm good. <laughs> Excited to have you on. We've got big D-League things to cover, which is not something anyone says that often on a podcast, but that, that's why you're here. Exactly, exactly. And also helping us talk about the Pistons, as he does every week. Ben Galker, how are you, Ben? I'm still kind of fatigued, actually, from that uh, quadruple overtime game. I can only imagine how the players must feel. Exhausted. That, that was an exhausting game. I think Stan Van said it best with just excruciating if you lost and exhausting if you won. So perfect to have a break after that game. Uh, so we'll be talking about that game first. We'll dive into it. Uh, but again, I want to thank everyone for continuing to support our podcast. If you're looking for the best place to find this podcast, the best place to do it is on iTunes. Make sure to subscribe. New episodes are posted as soon as this goes live. And you can also find it at blogtalkradio.com slash Detroit Bad Boys. And of course, the home for all things Detroit Pistons, DetroitBadBoys.com on SB Nation, the site that hosts this podcast and hosts all of us as contributors. So make sure to check it out. And yes, let's talk about the four overtime thriller against the Chicago Bulls. The Pistons hold on and survive a desperation heave at the end of that game by Jimmy Butler. Just a fantastic basketball game. I guess just what were your first thoughts, Ben, after that game finished and the Pistons came out on top? My first thought was that this could be a very interesting revival of a pretty important rivalry. Um, It's been a long time since the Pistons have been relevant. And the Bulls have been a pretty solid team for a number of years now, in spite of all of the drama with Derrick Rose and his injuries and his contract situations. Um, You know, I don't know how long the Bulls are going to stay relevant, probably for at least another couple years. But I think to me this triggered, this is a rivalry again. And this is um, a matchup that could matter in terms of playoff positioning, not you know, not just in terms of, of pride or passion, but really in terms of, of how the playoffs could shake out. So to me, that was exciting to see the Pistons and Bulls matter, to get some national attention, and, and hopefully that sparks some interest for the future because I think it's a really interesting matchup. I agree. It definitely should be good for the rivalry. And I think you're right. Both teams are kind of intersecting, at least with how they're playing right now. So you have, this could be the end of the 50-win Bulls, uh, at least with how they're currently put together. I think that roster could see some changes uh, with Fred Hoiberg and a, a kind of a change to how he wants to play. But the defense is still great. It's becoming Jimmy Butler's team, which I think is very interesting. But really what they need is someone else to step up. If it wasn't for Jimmy Butler, this game would not have went through four overtimes. And I guess you could say the same with the Pistons and Reggie Jackson, but it, it seems that they do need something else. And having that log jam at the forward position... It, It'll kind of be interesting what the Bulls do this season if they want to kind of stay as contenders in the East. Yeah, you think they'd have to make some moves because, you know, you look at Joel Kim Noah, he doesn't, he's not a bench player. 
he doesn't belong on the bench anywhere. Uh, so it would make sense that he'd be somebody they'd be thinking about moving. Personally, if I were running that team, I would look to get rid of Derrick Rose because I I watch him play and he doesn't look anything like the player he was when he was an MVP. Uh, and I don't, you know, I don't know. Is he ever going to get it back? It sure doesn't look like it to me. So to me, those are the two pieces that look, you know, the most movable. And then of course, Powell is getting old as well, but you know, still pretty productive. So yeah, I think changes have to be on the horizon for them to stay relevant. Fascinating team on a number of levels for me. Uh, I don't know quite what the avenue to get rid of Rose is, but they're just not really impressed by how they're managing this front court. It seems like they continually run out the least effective front court duos. And I think you're right that there could be a lot of turnover coming with uh, Gasol likely to opt out of his contract. And then you have Noah's impending free agency. So I think you could see a lot of changes at this team. Yeah. I kind of expect that this will be a team that could be pretty active at the trade deadline. And, Jacob, you're right. I'm not sure what they'll do, but I would have to think that a team, especially a Western Conference team, might try to jump in here and take advantage of the fact that the Bulls have not figured out how to use Noah, Gibson, Gasol, and Miritich together. So you're right. The, the combinations of how they're using their players doesn't really seem to play to the strengths of that of those front courts. So I have to think that that's a team that's looking to make a move, uh, and I'm interested which one is on the outside. Uh, when it's all said and done. But you're right, Derrick Rose, if he's trying to turn himself into a jump shooter, that's just not the strength of his game. And I think he's just lost so much confidence from those injuries now. I don't know if he'll ever be the same. And it's a shame because those Derrick Rose, those were fun teams to watch. Even though, you know, as a Pistons fan, you got to hate the Bulls. Those were at least fun teams to watch. It'd be nice to see him return to form, but he's not going to do it if he's going to try to turn himself into a jump shooter. And shooting 34 times, he's only 14 of 34. If they had found a way to get five or seven of those shots to Jimmy Butler instead, the Bulls probably walk away from that game with a victory. He's just, he's such a high usage player, and he doesn't have the explosiveness to get some of those high percentage looks that he used to get, especially around the basket. You know, only five free throw attempts, as many shots as he took. You know, his game has just changed. It's it's not what it was, and it's hard to see. He's not getting any younger. How, how does he get back there? No, it's true. And I think having Paul, Paul Gasol on the floor for 48 minutes, he was really losing his lotion over time. And he's a guy who's always been able to put up stats, but there's just been a lot of talk lately that he's turning into kind of an empty stats guy. And he was getting absolutely torched by Reggie Jackson at the rim at the end of the game, and that might have been a contribution to their loss as well. Yeah, they, they definitely were not a team built for that fourth overtime. Not that any team is, but you're right. Gasol definitely did not look the same defensively at the end of that game. And it's not like that is really the strength of his game anyway, uh, is is being a rim protector. And, and that's the thing that's so strange about the Bulls. Having the Miritich-Gasol combination and then bringing Noah in and playing him with Gibson, it just doesn't seem like that's the way to do it. It seems like they should try to mix those players, but Fred Hoiberg has kind of stayed away from that. And... I feel like it's cost them games so far this year. Yeah. And I feel like the main reason for that is if Miritich was actually able to hit a shot, then I think they could just play him with Noah and a lot of us have been fixed. But Miritich is just, he cannot buy a bucket this year, and I think that's really hurt them. Yeah, it's it's surprising that he's has not been the same player he was even last year. You're right, it's just the shot isn't falling right now. Uh, that's a good point, though. Yeah, you can't play him with Noah if the shot isn't falling, because offensively then you've got two players that defenses don't even have to worry about. 
But Ben, just kind of bring it back to your main point. You're right. I think there's a chance that this could be the rebirth of a, a potential rivalry between the the Bulls and Pistons. So the Bulls right now they're inside. They're in the playoff picture, 15 and 10 record. There's a chance the Pistons, you know, with, depending on how these teams play the rest of the season, this could be a first round matchup uh, in the NBA playoffs. So you're right, Ben, that this this could be the start of a, a rivalry between the two. Yeah, and what's interesting when you look at the playoff seating, even since we talked a week ago. The logjam is real in the East because you're talking about the the 11th seed having 14 wins and the one seed having 17 wins. When's the last time that happened in the East? I mean, I, I can't really remember. So, yeah, I mean, we were talking about Detroit as, what, a 6, 7, 8 seed, I think was kind of the most optimistic look. With the way the East is looking, a couple wins or a couple losses could propel you from 8 to 4, uh, if things stay as tight as they are. And really, if you look 2 through almost 13 in the East, you've got the Pacers at 16 and 10, and then the Wizards at 11 and 14. A difference of four and a half games right now between the 2 and 12 spots, that's that's quite a bit of parity right now in the East. So things are definitely not settled. It is nice to see the Pistons at least in that top 8 for right now. But you're right, there's just so much parity that it, so much is going to change between now and you know the end of the season. Uh, which I think moves us into talking about this next week of games. Pistons this upcoming week play two road games and a home game on Saturday. They're on the road uh, at Miami on Tuesday, at Atlanta on Wednesday, and then Saturday they come home to Boston. So those are all teams in that playoff picture, Ben. How important is this time right now leading up to the Christmas break for the Pistons? I think it's huge because I really do think tiebreakers are going to matter. So you're looking at Pistons having... One win over the Hawks, uh, and then um, one win over the Celtics. Um, everyone who's in this playoff picture right now, if it's if it stays the way it is, let's see, there's two teams with 17 wins, four teams with 15 wins, two teams with 16 wins, two teams with 14 wins. I mean, that's the sort of playoff hunt where tiebreakers are really going to be important and really going to matter. So, like I said last week, in addition to amassing as many wins as possible, uh, these wins against the Eastern teams that are in the playoff point could could end up making or breaking things. Breaking the schedule finally came for the Pistons as well, having a few days off before this Miami and Atlanta road game back-to-back. Another back-to-back, Ben. But this break seemed to come at a really good time for the team. The Pistons have played 28 games. There's only one team in the NBA, the Portland Trailblazers, who have played more games at this point. Quite a few teams have played 28, but... Only one team has played more, so they've played quite a few games at this point in the season. It seemed like that break came at a good time, off a four-overtime game, uh, but now another back-to-back. Oh, so yeah, there's another back-to-back, which is going to be important. But then really the next two and a half weeks, really the next three weeks, fortunately the Pistons get a little bit of a break. They've got a couple different stretches of, of you know two, game, two days between games. Um, so hopefully we see... You know, we unpacked some of those stats last week about how uh, on zero days of rest the Pistons really struggle. Um, hopefully, we're going to see less of that team that's struggling and fatigued, in spite of the fact that yeah, we do have a back-to-back coming up. Yeah, I agree, and I could see the the back-to-back having Atlanta on the back end of that. Uh, Atlanta's team that's won um, their last two games. They've won. Uh, they're five and five in their last ten, but they've been better lately, and they've kept themselves in that playoff picture even after kind of a tough start. So that's that's really difficult, especially when you have the Heat, uh, a team that has been playing defensively very well this season, 
and is, I, I think, a tough matchup, even though the Pistons did beat them earlier in the season. That's a really tough stretch of games, but you're right, very crucial games. Uh, that could come back to haunt us or be the difference in April. Yeah, I, th- I just think the Miami game is interesting because they're a team that has so much offensive firepower, but, you know, they've really struggled to score the ball, actually, and they're not a huge fan of their roster because of all their spacing issues. So I think that's a game that we could eke out for sure. And then, obviously, a back-to-back in Atlanta, that's going to be a tough one. Definitely. And so far, December's been kind to the Pistons. They have the best record in the month of December uh, right now in the Eastern Conference. But it definitely gets tougher between here and and New Year's. I think games against the Heat and Hawks, that'll make the difference in how this team looks heading into the New Year. And heading into the New Year, we might have something special coming back to this Pistons roster. And we got a glimpse of it Saturday in Grand Rapids. Jacob, I know you got to see some of that game, the return of Brandon Jennings, the first time he's... What did you see out of Brandon Jennings in that Grand Rapids drive game on Saturday? You know, it might not be the answer that people necessarily want, but you you don't really know. I mean, it was interesting to watch him play in this game because it did kind of look like a practice. He was walking the ball up the court a lot. He didn't really, he didn't really get to see him try to make any explosive drives or cuts. He wasn't really playing intense defense. The team that they were playing, Iowa... I think they only played eight guys, and, like, those were the only guys on their team at the time. Like, they had a bunch of guys up and playing for the Grizzlies or something. But, uh, you know, there were definitely some nice things to Jennings' performance. He had 12 assists. I mean, he had a bunch of turnovers early, but he really turned it up, and they pulled away in the second half pretty bad. But as far as how he looked, like, physically coming back from a torn Achilles, which I guess is the most important part of it, didn't really get to see much because it didn't look like he was playing all that hard. It just kind of looked like he was, you know, practicing, coming back for the first time, which I guess was the whole point of this outing. And his shot was falling too, which is pretty cool. But, you know, there were a couple of the threes that he hit were just contested miracle, like Brandon Jennings way rainbow arc shots that we kind of like to see. So Jacob, do you, uh, what's next? I guess what's the next step for Brandon Jennings? Do you think he's close to coming back to the NBA? Could we see him maybe playing another game with a drive? What, what do you think's next in his recovery? You know, I don't know for sure. I, um, I'll take a look, and I think I think that he is rejoining the team. There was a report about that a few hours ago early today. So I'm guessing, like, he's not going to be out there for 25 minutes playing hard in his first game back, but I think you will see him on the Pistons from now on. I mean, it was just kind of a rehab game to see how he was looking. And I think, you know... Even though he might not have shown you everything, I think that was always part of the plan with him to take this game kind of easily. Now he's going to go and probably start taking some of those backyard, backup point guard minutes right away, I would think. Yeah, and, and Ben, before I turn it over to you, Jacob, I know I've got Ben's opinion on this before. What do you think of using the D-League for rehab assignments? Do you, do you think this was good for Brandon Jennings and the Pistons uh, using the D-League like this? I mean, I think absolutely. I don't. I don't see why it wouldn't be. I mean, this is a. This is, if I'm not mistaken, this is probably one of the first times that an established player like Jennings, who would have had to, you need to have his consent to have him go down and play in the D League. And you know, if he does this, this helps bring the collective consciousness to focus on the D League a little bit more. I don't think it fixes kind of the issues that the D League has, but it's really good for the league to have players not afraid of the stigma of going down and playing there. And as far as, like, Van Gundy was there, he had a nice fedora, if you got to see a look at that. And uh, Drummond was there, and Jennings was there. And, you know, they all had their good style going on and everything. But 
I think just integrating the D League into the NBA is a pretty nice way to do it, and also you get to see Jennings play in a little bit more of a lighthearted atmosphere before just throwing him into the fourth overtime against the Bulls or something. So I don't really see a downside to it. Yeah, you're right, and he did have some classic Brandon Jennings highlights. The moment yeah, that did ever you see the, did you see the alley oop off the backboard to Ebanks? Yes, the, the I think that was the thing everyone saw, and I saw SB Nation and even ESPN had picked it up as a highlight. The off the backboard alley oop in transition, an awesome Brandon Jennings moment. Yeah, and that was kind of the fun of it, right? Is that he kind of had the freedom to do crap like that, but there was no way he would do that in his first game back if it was in the NBA. And Ben, if this is the Brandon Jennings that the Pistons are going to be getting right now, where it seems he's ready to go back into game action, maybe maybe slow at first, how, how important is it for the Pistons to get him back in? And what do you expect to see from him once he's back with the Pistons after what you saw Saturday? If the Pistons are focusing on the playoffs this season, which I think given the way the first 28 games have gone, they, they likely are. I think that Brandon Jennings is going to be a very key cog in their ability to get there. We've talked a lot about the concerns about playing Reggie Jackson and KCP and Marcus Morris, these huge amounts of minutes over the course of 82 games. So even if Brandon Jennings is only marginally better than Steve Blake when he first comes back, and you know I'm going to have low expectations coming off an Achilles tear is no small thing. But even if he's only marginally better, that can buy some really, really important bench time for Jackson and probably KCP as well, which I think over the long term, if we're not talking about just 82 games, if we're really thinking about 82 games and potentially pulling off an upset in the first round, um, then as much as anything, being able to keep guys rested and fresh is going to be really important come March, April, and May. Uh, it's going to it's going to be critically important. So Jennings coming back at even half strength, you know, half of his productivity from a year ago, I think gives the Pistons bench an instant shot in the arm and really helps helps especially uh, Jackson and KCP as well. I think it gives Marcus Morris more minutes at the four, too, which I really appreciate, because right now we just don't have the guards to slide him up. Right, and we, we did get to see, which I thought was interesting, too, Reggie Bullock and Darren Hilliard playing with Brandon Jennings. And what I think is interesting is if Jennings is – starting his role of playing, you know, maybe just taking the Steve Blake minutes to start. So that 12 to 20 minutes a game uh, for right now. I'm interested if Van Gundy is is looking to maybe give Bullock and Hilliard more minutes with that bench uh, because it gives Jennings a shooter. It gives, you know, someone else on the wings uh, because as we've seen, Stanley Johnson's played a little bit better. I'm wondering if Bullock and Hilliard could see more minutes now as well. Jacob, the minutes, I know if people look at the box score, they might be impressed by what Bullock and Hilliard did. Uh, just kind of run down what you saw from those two as well on Saturday. Well, you know, those two look awesome, honestly. I mean, Hilliard and Bullock, it looks like they combined to go 11 of 17 from three. They combined for 52 points. They were really the, the best players on the floor by far. But I don't know. It's hard to, I mean, if I could tell you what D-League performances could translate perfectly to NBA success, like, I would be making a lot more money than I am right now. But I think uh, I think they've definitely shown, especially Hilliard, that he deserves some time, that he at least deserves some run. So I think I think you could definitely see it. I think the Pistons have to actually start blowing some more teams out because everything lately has just been such like nail-biting games that you don't really have time to mess around with guys like this. But I think both of them, you know, like, 
there's no reason to think that they have no chance of being good contributors at some point. I agree, and they're still young, and, and within the first, you know, this Hilliard's just a rookie, and Bullock only a few years in the league, so you're right, I think there's some time for them to kind of work their way into the spot on the roster. What I'm looking forward to is Brandon Jennings potentially playing most of his minutes with Stanley Johnson. If if that's the, what they want to do is, is have Jennings play with that second unit, I'm really excited about the potential of Jennings working with Stanley Johnson because it gives him someone who, who could really help in the transition game, but also give Stanley Johnson someone who can get him the ball in good situations and create some space for him. So I'm really looking forward to those two working together. Absolutely. And I, I also thought I'd mention, as I'm looking up Brendan Jennings, I see that his son's name is Legend Truth Jennings. So I figured that has to be on the program. That needs to be mentioned. Yeah, that name will also be tagged into this episode. That actually might be the name of this episode now, because that's incredible. I didn't know that. Legend Truth. He also, I I did tweet at him to see if he would come on the pod to talk to us today, and he did favorite the tweet, and I got really excited, and then he later, like, it wasn't favorited by him anymore, and I was kind of kind of bummed. So it must have been like an accidental thing, but he really got my hopes up. And then you got me, and you were even <laughs> That's right, everyone. You didn't get Brandon Jennings. You got Jacob Kivenhoven. I'm well, fine with Jacob, it. Jacob, <laughs> I don't think you're quite as good off the dribble as Brandon Jennings, but we're so glad to have you. Nah, I mean, yeah, thanks. I, as long as it doesn't happen on the court, too. <laughs> That's right. The other thing I would say about Jennings that I'm actually really looking forward to, um, in terms of providing something no one else on the roster really has, uh, is that Jennings has been historically a pretty good three-point shooter, off the dribble, and then um, in transition. So the pull-up three, kind of like we used to see Billups do uh, back in his glory days. So I think especially as pick-and-roll heavy as this team has been, and the the second unit has been very pick-and-roll heavy as well, Brandon Jennings, if he's got the the lift and the legs to shoot some pull-up threes, I think that creates some challenges for defenses that they haven't had to yet face uh, in the current Pistons pick-and-roll attack. So... Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, if, if he's healthy, uh, if that skill continues, because I, I think it gives us a different look we haven't had. That was something he did do in the game yesterday, too, so that's a really good point. Like, Blake's not a threat to do that at all. Right, so often when Steve Blake is kind of starting the play out of transition, he's so quick to set up a half-court look. It would be nice to have the bench push the pace a bit, because we have the guys that could really find some success with that. Anthony Tolliver getting open looks in transition, Stanley Johnson getting to the basket, and Jennings having that that ability to pull up and find people quickly. I, I think we need that. We need that for this second unit. So it's it's all positivity right now. If you're a Pistons fan, what you saw Saturday and the potential for Brandon Jennings on this team, uh, it, I think it's really exciting. So it's time to go to the Ask DBB mailbag. Again, if you're trying to get in touch with this podcast, the best way to do so, hashtag AskDBB. You can use that on Twitter, or when you see the podcast posted on Detroit Bad Boys, just comment and make sure to include the hashtag AskDBB. It makes it easier for Ben and I to find it when we're scouring through. But the first question I'll actually give to you, Jacob, and it's about Brandon Jennings. It comes from Merwinley in the comments. If Brandon Jennings comes back near full strength for the remainder of the season and is willing to re-sign to Detroit as the backup point guard, is there anyone else you'd rather have signed this offseason? I don't think so. I mean, it kind of depends on what Jennings is asking for, obviously, and that will depend on his play. But I think we're talking about a contract probably in the 10 to 15 million range if he starts playing reasonably well. 
And I think that's better than what you're going to get. Like, we're talking about the 2016 free agent class. There's so much money out there, and I just don't think we're going to get a better deal than Jennings for that kind of number that we're looking at. Because the other guys that are out there are like Rayshon Rondo, Darren Williams, guys who you probably don't want on your team as a backup. And then you can make a giant offer sheet to Jordan Clarkson or something. And then the other (laughs) options are like Jeremy Lin or Grievous Vasquez, guys that I don't really think are upgrades over Jennings at all. So if he comes back and is just a complete disaster, then maybe you could go after Grievous Vasquez or Lynn or something. But I think I think probably the best value is trying to get Jennings back. He seems like he wants to play in Detroit. And honestly, if he starts, if he's a little slow to come back from the Achilles, the next contract that he signs could be a huge bargain. So I would look for the Pistons to try to re-sign Brandon Jennings. That's true. His rehab from this and how he looks in the next 50 games, you're right, that will definitely have a big impact on the offer sheet he signs this offseason. Uh, but with everything Stan Van Gundy said, I have to think he's in the future plans. And he has said and done all the right things. It seems like he's he's really been interested in in just being a part of the team. And the other part of this comment from Merwinley mentions Vinny Johnson. And Ben, do you see Brandon Jennings working himself into kind of a Vinny Johnson six-man role where he can play the one and the two? I hope so, because that's the way he's going to get the most minutes, is if he's uh, willing and able to play go- both guard positions. Uh, Vinny was actually a really apt comparison, I thought. Not necessarily because their games are similar, but in terms of the role that they may be projected to play. And uh, we talked about the fact if, if you have KCP and Reggie Jackson you know, playing 28 to 32 minutes a game each, there's still a lot of minutes left there, and Brandon Jennings could potentially um, you know, play the lion's share of those minutes. And coming off from the injury, as we've talked about, that actually might be the perfect role for him, given where he's at in terms of his health. Uh, in terms of the long term, um, one scenario in which I could see the Pistons retaining him is if um, teams, maybe other teams are a little bit scared by the injury history. Maybe he's a little bit slow to round into form. I could potentially see him taking a one- or two-year deal in hopes of playing his way into one more large contract, and that could potentially be very advantageous uh, for both sides uh, because Jacob's right, there's a ton of money going to be thrown around in free agency, and Jennings might be, uh, might be the best value and give us some continuity, uh, which Van Gundy's talked about recently. The other thing you got to worry about is like some crazy team like Sacramento having all this cap room and being like, hey, Brandon, two years, $40 million, you up for it? And we might lose them. <laughs> you can never trust the Kings. I think that that's what this offseason, actually with the last, I don't know, 10 years with the Sacramento Kings has taught us is you're right. There could be a team that just comes in and throws an insane amount of money at him. And, and I would understand if he, if he chased an offer like that, but it seems he's walking into a situation where there are minutes already carved out for him. KCP is playing big minutes and I'm sure with the way he's playing Stan Van Gundy would love to give some of those minutes to someone else. And then you have the backup point guard minutes, which is 15 to 18 a game behind Reggie Jackson. So I think there's definitely a good 20, 20 plus minutes a game there for Brandon Jennings to step in and, and be someone who could be in that six man of the year conversation every year as a, a third guard for this team. I'll move on to the other question in the mailbag, Ben. I'll give this one to you. It's from Sauce in the comments. Does Detroit go after another solid player, Cheeto 4 style, if we're five to 10 games around 500 to the trade deadline? Are we in the position to make a move for another solid player? So I think the general consensus on this is that 
the Pistons don't really have any significant trade assets. And for that reason, they're not expected to be movers and shakers at the trade deadline. And while I would agree that they don't have any significant trade assets, I mean, you look at the core of the team, Reggie and Drummond, pretty much untouchable. And then you've got young players on small contracts, so it doesn't make any sense to move at all. But there are several quality players on very reasonable contracts uh, that could be enticing. Now, I don't particularly have a scenario in mind that I'm targeting, but when you look at what SVG has done over the last couple years, he and Bauer have definitely been willing and able to make small incremental moves that have had a pretty significant impact on the way the team has performed. So you look at Marcus Morris, sort of a bargain bin contract, and now he's a starter. You look at Anthony Tolliver, struggling a bit last year, but or this year, but last year, he was really a key cog in sort of that uh, resurgence that we saw uh, toward the end of the season. So I think you look at the camp contracts of guys like uh, Ilyasova, Marcus Morris, and then I think you got to throw Brandon Jennings in there, even though I think a lot of us would like to have him back. He's on a very fair deal as well if he's playing well, and he can make a really nice one-year rental for someone who's willing to maybe drop a couple assets in order to make a playoff push this year. Um, and then I think Aaron Baines, you can throw him into that conversation. Uh, he's underperformed a little bit, but still a relatively productive big man on a very reasonable contract. And then I think Anthony Tolliver as well. All of those guys could fit, you know, as in this, in a second unit of a strong playoff team. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. I don't expect anything big, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if there's a small incremental move that's made, uh, not as big as Sheed in 04, but a small incremental move that's made. Uh, to maybe help us a little bit now or even better position us uh, for this summer in the future. Hey, Ben, uh, I was going to ask you regarding this question, what do you think about the Ryan Anderson rumors? I mean, he's a guy who's going into free agency this summer. He's an elite stretch four who's played with Van Gundy before, and he's on a team that could basically, is basically in a lost season. Do you think that's a possibility? I don't think trading for him makes too much sense um, because in order to make the – just from the perspective of making the salaries work, we'd have to give up probably more than we'd want to to get him. He does, however, make sense um, in terms of being a pursuit this summer, in my opinion. I do think uh, his best years happened under Stan Van Gundy. Uh, I'm inclined to think that that's not accidental. I think what Van Gundy got out of several of those role players in Orlando has a lot to do with Van Gundy's coaching. And I don't think there's a lot of NBA coaches you can really say that about. So I think Anderson makes sense as a stretch four. Um, I don't think it makes a ton of sense to go after him in the trade market. I think it would make more sense just to try to pursue him because we'll have the, the ability to do that this summer. Yeah, and I think there are a few players that have been talked about. I know Markeith Morris is someone, although it doesn't seem like he fits the the stretch four mold that we're looking for. Just being the brother of Marcus Morris and someone on the you know tr- someone that you always see in trade rumors, his name has been thrown around. And Ryan Anderson's another one. I was really interested in Ryan Anderson at first, but Ben, I, I think you're right. I just think making the contract work right now means we're giving someone away that is probably just too beneficial to what we're doing taking a risk on a guy who could walk in the offseason. Even if he's a perfect fit here, you could have, again, another situation where a team throws big money at him. I've kind of cooled on the idea of bringing someone like Ryan Anderson here. Yeah, I mean, if Ryan Anderson were going to make the difference between being a legit contender 
and a second round exit, then it's a different conversation. But the Pistons just aren't there yet. So I, mm-hmm. I don't think it makes sense to sacrifice assets for 40 games. The guy I do um, find really interesting as a, a trade prospect is Terrence Jones. I think <laughs> he's a pretty underrated player that's flying under the radar right now and um, has kind of struggled to find a, a really permanent niche over in um, Houston. And I really like his game. I think he could be a sneaky he could be a sneaky pickup either at the deadline or uh, this summer. I believe he's an unrestricted unrestricted free agent. Yeah, so I would be keeping an eye. Personally, I think he fits Van Gundy's system really well. So I I would be looking that direction. Yeah, he's a really interesting one. I hadn't thought of him before. And he gives us a chance to mention Donuts Montezuma, Ben. That's which, right. Given that, Montezuma. that Houston really does like Donatus Montiunis, or however you say his name. He's Donuts Montezuma on this podcast. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, and given that they seem to prefer him and he's getting more than minutes at that four spot, I think Terrence Jones, that's worth a worth a phone call to Daryl Morey and see what it would take at the deadline to get Terrence Jones, who's on a very reasonable deal right now. It's Daryl Morey. Don't, don't, don't mess with Morey. He wins every trade. He does. So so far, so good. Sam Pinky's won every trade, too. So what can you say? <laughs> that's an, yeah, that's another guy you, you don't mess with. And then managed to almost not win a game this year. So <laughs> impressive. Right, no, yeah, good, good job. you got to trust the process, though. That, that's really a win. Every time they lose is really a win for Philly. Right. Another player I wanted to throw out here, and I'll just get your opinion both from both of you, Danilo Gallinari, a player in Denver that I, I feel like he would be competing with Marcus Morris, but has played more at that, that four spot uh, previously, in, including his time in New York. Uh, is Danilo Gallinari someone that we could be interested in? I guess I'll take this. I mean, I love Danilo Gallinari. I was a massive fan of that 57 win Nuggets team back that, back in the day. And, you know, when he tore his ACL, that basically ended that team's run because they got smashed by the Warriors and then Iguodala left and everything. But I love, I mean, I love his game. I think also he's a perfect fit for the system because he, unlike Ilyasova, he actually is a passer and an off-ball creator and a guy that can make plays. Again, I think he's making like 13, 15 million a year. So, again, you'd have a situation where it would be difficult to make a contract match. But, like, if you were targeting him, I'm I'm happy with that, honestly. He's on a very reasonable deal, and I think he's better than Morris and Ilyasova. I agree, and I actually, the reason I mention him is because I could see Stan Van's interest in Ursan Ilyasova this offseason. I could see some of that interest being that contract where the cap hit for next season, if you cut Ilyasova, is pretty low. He's, you know, he only would have one more year on his deal after this season. I could see a team that's trying to maneuver to create some cap space being interested in Ilyasova, and Denver is kind of one of those teams. And as they continue to figure out what they're going to do and how they break up all those front court minutes, I think Gallinari is someone that could be available. Uh, but Jacob, you're right that trying to make that money work right now might be difficult. Ben, do you think Ursan's someone that, that could be traded at the deadline? And then also I want to get your thoughts on uh, Danilo as well. Yeah, so Gallo, I'm a fan of his game. I'm, I'm nervous about his durability. For me, that would be the hesitation before anything else. I think in terms of the way that he plays on the offensive side of the ball, he's a very natural fit um, when you think about what Stan Van Gundy is, is building here. Uh, his durability is the main question mark. He seems to be healthy right now. That's a good sign. He seems to be playing really well right now. Um, the other factor I would consider is you mentioned sort of their big man rotation uh, over in Denver. I think it'll be interesting to see if they can figure anything out or if, if 
you know, come January, middle end of January, if they're on the outside looking in, a trade built around, you know, Gallo for Ilyasova plus potentially some sort of draft pick from us might make sense if they're really looking to go the cost-cutting route to clear a bunch of cap space because of uh, the way that Ilyasova's contract is structured next year. Um, so, yeah, I'd be interested in a trade like that. I think he's a, a very intriguing player, assuming he stays healthy. Yeah, and I think that if we're looking for another shooter, someone who could really play into that stretch four spot, as well as Ursan has played this season, I could see Danilo being someone we at least look at. And, and Denver, again, I feel like they're still, uh, as well as they've played, they're, they're still trying to figure out that roster. So I, I think it's someone that we could at least target because of that contract. Uh, but I think Terrence Jones, Ben, I think that's someone that's higher on my list right now. Ben, the next part of the question was, or do we wait for the offseason and try to make a great pitch to someone? I've seen a few fan posts that mention Kevin Durant's name. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> you gotta try, right? Okay, this is what I wanted. This is the conversation I wanted. Go ahead, Ben. <laughs> so, the odds of Durant leaving Oklahoma City, to me, are... I think they're more likely than not, personally. Um, the CBA is still structured such that teams can re-sign their own players and it's advantageous for players to re-sign with their own teams, and I get that. But is Oklahoma really – are they really going anywhere? I mean, you look at the way the, the rest of the Western Conference is structured right now. What's the, what's the path for them to contention? I mean, I, I don't know – what it is. I don't... Doesn't Durant hate Reggie Jackson? So there's some... Yeah, he had that quote right right after the trade was made where there was one guy who wasn't happy and that everyone seemed to think that was Reggie Jackson. So yeah, maybe that's enough to turn him away, but... And after, after, they, beat the, after they beat the Pistons, he's like, well, they got a lot of good players. They got Ilya Sova, they got Drummond, they got Caldwell Pope, Stanley John. He, like, listed the whole team except Reggie Jackson. <laughs> If it's between Reggie Jackson and Kevin Durant, Reggie, I love you, but I would choose Kevin Durant. In the in the alternate universe where that he actually wants to do that, I think you find a way to trade Reggie Jackson. All of that was tongue in cheek, by the way. I think you absolutely have to pick up the phone and make the call. And then he can say, "I'm going to the Warriors." <laughs> you can say that. <laughs> The one team I thought would be in the Kevin Durant sweepstakes this summer was Washington, but with how poorly they've played, I don't know if that helps or hurts their pitch this summer. Uh, if this is a team that's outside of the playoff picture in the East, I don't know how you sell yourself to, to Kevin Durant. I, I know it would be a homecoming, and they brought his, what was it, his high school coach on and gave him kind of a uh, a role with the coaching staff. I, I thought Washington would be the only way the only team that could get him out of Oklahoma City, but with how poorly they've played, I just, I don't see a a scenario where he leaves for an Eastern Conference team. But at the same time, you're right, Ben, that with with where they're positioned in the West... Well, I just, I look at their roster, right? So they're still relatively young. The majority of Mm -hmm. guys that are playing big minutes are still several years under 30. There's 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 not enough room for internal development there to get them over the hump to be a real contender. I mean... You're looking at guys, Westbrook's, I think, improved a little bit over the last couple years. I mean, Durant is just as good as he's going to be. I mean, he's not going to get that much better. But then the rest of those players, there's just not a lot of room for them to get, you know, to take these huge strides that push them over the top. So I think, you know, what what's if you're a free agent in Kevin Durant's situation, yeah, I could re-sign with Oklahoma City and maybe be the third or fourth best team in the West, 
for the rest of my career. Or maybe I bolt to the Eastern Conference where, you know, LeBron's getting older. There's room for a new, you know, a new game in town, so to speak. And maybe he maybe he jumps ship because he wants the chance to compete in the finals on a consistent basis. And maybe the Eastern Conference is a, is a path to do that more quickly than the West. That's my hope. I mean, that's, that's me being as optimistic as I can possibly be about this question. And I'm not even sure if your optimism works well for the Pistons. I, I think there are other teams. I'll include Miami, Washington, maybe New York, just because it's New York, as being possible teams that could get into that get into that conversation for Kevin Durant and and maybe try to make a move for him this summer. You're right that the path is probably easier through the East, at least with how the Warriors look right now. The easier path to getting to the NBA Finals would be creating a big three of your own in the East somewhere. Well, yeah, and of course, like, in, in my opinion, like the most realistic scenario for the Pistons this year is that they don't make a huge splash. I think they're, they're big, their two big guys are Jackson and Drummond. I think the types of move that Van Gundy is, is likely to make are the mid-level exception up to maybe 12 or $13 million. I think those are the kinds of players he's going to be looking to add to sort of supplement this roster while retaining long-term flexibility uh, in terms of being able to make trades and stuff by avoiding these albatross contracts that other GMs maybe tend to give out. Yeah, that's very true. And bringing on players like Marcus Morrison or San Ilyasova show us exactly that, that that's how he's trying to build this team and then maybe he does try to make that one Rashard Lewis splash, which would kind of be 4 Rashid style, going back to the question. It, mm-hmm. there, there's a chance that I, I think we are one overpaid player away from being a 50-win-plus team in the Eastern Conference. So who that player is, I trust Van Gundy enough. Is there anyone, Ben, this summer that you think could be the, the guy that we overpay that becomes the, the, the third part of the big three for Detroit? Ryan Anderson's a natural target. I think it's going to cost a lot to get him. And Vincundi has made kind of, what is it about? I think it was when he was talking about Richard Lewis. You know, you can talk about overpaying a guy by a few million dollars here and there, but the reality is that was the guy we wanted, so we paid him and we moved on. I could see him, if there's a guy like Anderson that he knows and he knows is going to be a good fit, maybe Anderson is the guy who gets, who gets paid maybe a little bit over his market value in order to get him here. Jacob, what do you think? I think there are some interesting targets for us, honestly. I mean, uh, a guy like Nick Batum, Chandler Parsons as a player option. Chandler Parsons is a really interesting one to me because, you know, he's coming off of a serious injury and he hasn't looked that great this year. But this is a guy that if you gamble on him, it could seriously pay off. He's another fantastic fit for our system. Yeah, Batum is actually, like, on the top of my list. I'm glad you mentioned him. I think... It would be interesting to do that with Stanley Johnson, but if you could give Batum like a three- or a four-year deal, I think that takes a lot of the pressure off Stanley Johnson. He could just be the bench guy when he's 19, 20, 21, 22 years old, and then we, we get the chance to figure out if he's the real deal before committing to him long-term. Batum is a really nice player. I think he would fit wonderfully here. And I do sort of see Stanley Johnson as a power forward long-term in Van Gundy's system, so maybe that's another thing that I should mention when I'm looking at these guys. Interesting, yeah, that's an interesting thought. That's interesting because I saw, and and I saw kind of glimpses of this in the Chicago game, Stanley Johnson possibly being, taking KCP's spot in the starting role. I I saw that as a move uh, that could come maybe even this season. The way Stanley Johnson gets to the starting lineup is at the shooting guard spot. Do you think power forward, Jacob? I think so, yeah. I think that when, I mean, this comes sort of from my philosophy that if you should play up, you absolutely should. And I think the height and strength advantage he would have at shooting guard is not as 
as advantageous to the Pistons as the quickness and the shooting advantages he would have at power forward. And he's only 19, and he's already big enough to bang with these guys at power forward. So I think he could absolutely play that position, and his playmaking and shooting at that position would be an incredible asset on offense. I'm kind of, I'm kind of without words with respect to him at the four because I have never thought about it before. I have thought about him as a potential shooting guard, but maybe more of a point forward at the three uh, because of how good he is with the ball. I mean, at 19, yeah. relatively speaking, how good he is with the ball. Um, at the four, I would need to think about that some more. I think a lot of that will depend on how his body develops over time because he's, he's already quite the specimen at 19. Um, but if he's able to bulk up without losing some of that speed and quickness, maybe not full-time power forward, but maybe sort of like a hybrid three, four uh, in certain scenarios could work. I, I, yeah. I don't know about full-time power forward. I, I need to think about that a little bit more. I think tells right. a lot of how much potential the kid has. Jacob, what were you yeah, going to say? There, but he has the, I mean, I think he has the size to do it. He's, just as big, if not bigger, than a lot of guys who do spend a lot of time at the four. And he's only 19, which I think that's been mentioned in this conversation like four times. Right, so there's a chance that he could have a, a Giannis moment and grow four inches this summer. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think it's totally out of the realm of possibility. He does look like a sawed-off power forward. And the way he plays the position, at least when he dri- when he's driving, I think there's a chance. And if anyone's going to do it, and Ben, you're right. This is not something I really, I've really thought of either. So I, I need to give it a little more thought. But I would be interested what Stan Van would want to do with him at at the four spot. I could see Stan Van doing it, at least for stretches, G- giving giving some guys uh, rest and allowing Stanley Johnson to create a mismatch at least speed wise by playing at the four spot. Oh, he'd be an absolute nightmare to cover. Um, with his ball handling ability, assuming that that continues to develop. He would be a nightmare for teams to match up with. And really, Draymond Green and the Golden State Warriors have are, are, are must be part of the conversation, Jacob. Is that the situation you look at when you think of Stanley Johnson is how Golden State has used Draymond as a, a mismatch with teams? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it kind of goes back to what I was saying. Like, I think Stanley Johnson... Going around big, clunky power forwards is about the best, best mismatch you can use him for. Like, I think that's his future more than backing down a shooting guard. And the Warriors kind of have taken this to about the most successful and awesome extreme possible. But if you're looking at the 2015 draft class, you can hardly choose a better guy to fulfill that sort of Draymond Green hybrid power forward role than Stanley Johnson. That's something I need to think about more. And I think now everyone that we bring on this podcast, Ben, we have to ask what they think about Stanley Johnson at the four. Because I, I, am, I agree. Let's put him on the spot. Because that's exactly what happened to me. It wasn't exactly maybe. That's no, it. it. Is, it's a good thing to think about. Because he is, what, like 245 pounds already? Yeah. So he's yeah. obviously a strong kid. So it's just a trajectory I hadn't thought about. And it is interesting. And he did play that kind of point forward for Arizona, and he did in high school as well. And he was so good in high school and always playing against bigger players. So you're right. And, again, he could still grow a little. Now now, now this is what I'm hoping for is this summer we find out Stanley Johnson grows three or four inches, dominates summer league, and is our stretch four mismatch power forward for the next ten-plus seasons. So, yeah, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you both so much for coming on this episode. Jacob, we'll definitely have you on again to talk D-League and to talk more Pistons basketball. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on, guys.
And just let everyone know where they can find you, Jacob. What's your uh, Twitter handle? It's at jkyv, which is just J-K-U-Y-V. Okay, great. And Ben, I know you want to call somebody out wrestling style right now to have them on future episodes of the podcast, so go ahead. We're going WWE. When's the last time I watched that? I, I honestly don't know. That's right. Grab so the mic out of my hand. I am uh, pretty, pretty opinionated when it comes to what the NBA should do with respect to intentional fouls and what started with sort of hack-a-shack several years ago. And uh, our own Sean Core is on the other end of that spectrum with some equally passionate uh, opinions and arguments. So we're hoping to get him on the show next week to duke it out one-on-one in the squared circle should the NBA change the rules or not in order to accommodate players like Andre Drummond. I'm looking forward to that. I want to hear his argument. I know he's talked about this before, but I want him to come on and talk a little bit more about that. I can sort of tell what your opinion is already by the fact that you said accommodate Andre Drummond. You got it. (laughs) That's right. Thanks so much, and thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode. And happy holidays, everyone. Merry Christmas, guys. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Christmas. Happy holidays to you as well. All right, so we will be joining you next week for another episode of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. Thanks.